Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Lucy Folks is a psychologist who researches mental health and social development in adolescents. She's an honorary lecturer in psychology at UCL, lives in London and has just produced her very first book, called Losing Our Minds, What Mental Illness Really Is and What It Isn't. Congratulations, Lucy, on a brilliant achievement in producing this book. Thank you so much. And tell us a little bit about yourself, your career and background, and why you chose to write this book at this time. Well, I think you've summed it up quite well, really. I've been working in as an academic psychologist for many years now and focusing on adolescents in particular and working on various projects to do with mental health. And I started to notice through that work, but also through my work supporting university students as a personal tutor, that we're talking a great deal about mental health and illness now. And and broadly, that should be a good thing. But some of the things I was reading and hearing, I started to wonder whether in some respects we're more confused than ever. You know, we've had this kind of onslaught of information and a lack of depth. So I think there's yeah, in some respects, we're more more confused than we were before. So I wrote the book to try and map out what we do know from a scientific perspective and to try and provide a bit of reassurance and clarity on this very complicated topic. And as, as you said, as a nation, we're talking, we're talking, talking about mental health. But the question is, are we talking about it in the right way? And one of the reasons why I wrote a big yes with an exclamation mark at the beginning of your book is I completely agree so much with what your sort of thesis around the book that for too long we're confusing sort of psychiatric disorders with the inherent stresses and challenges of normal life. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's this is one consequence if we kind of pump out all this information and terminology without a necessary depth, then these terms can be misused. And I think that's a problem. And I, I think the drive to talk about our distress is incredibly important and we shouldn't stop. But I think we've slightly misfired in terms of how we label and understand and respond to some negative experiences. One of the interesting dialogues, and you allude to this when you mentioned the anecdotal story about the university professor, I think, or teacher who basically kept having students say they were anxious about their presentations or they're suffering from anxiety so they couldn't go, you know, go ahead with the presentation. And he said, well, it's normal to have that kind of level of anxiety ahead of a giving a talk or giving a presentation. But he was, I think it was on Twitter, and he was deemed to be rather callous and mm. you know not very understanding and then in my own life a friend of mine who's a university lecturer she had the same issue she has students all the time now saying they're too anxious to come to lectures you know they're riddled with anxiety and I think people are caught now in this kind of space where they don't want to sound callous they don't want to sound you know unempathetic but at the same time we are so casually attaching labels 
to what would otherwise be sort of normal experiences. And I think the the root of the issue, which I talk about in some detail in the book, is that all these symptoms are a spectrum, right? So you you can, lots of people experience anxiety, you know, as a kind of transient emotion before giving a talk or a presentation. But some people, if your anxiety is high enough to kind of meet criteria for a disorder, will be absolutely crippled by the idea of doing a presentation and it will be awful and inappropriate thing to make them do it. But the trouble is, at the moment, with the conversation that we're having, those two things have become a little bit blurred. So, you know, the professor's attitude of saying, you know, of course they should be anxious, that's a, a cruel and unhelpful thing to say to people with a disorder. But actually, it's maybe a sensible thing to say to people with milder levels of distress, because actually the best thing you can do when you're anxious is to try and do the thing that scares you. That's right. And that's sort of, as you say, the problem is, the language that we use, the, the conversations that we have, they don't reflect the very great complexity behind not only the sort of the psychiatric disorders themselves, but the language isn't there to reflect people's understanding of them. Exactly. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff we can talk about, about, yeah, the language people use and why people use this language. But yeah, I'm, I'm very motivated to get the message out there that this is complicated. You know, if you find this topic confusing, that's because it is confusing. And I I think we're better off understanding and acknowledging its complexity. That's the best way that we can move forwards, I think. There is absolutely no doubt that your book really lays the complexity on the table. Mm. And it's got a very great, lovely balance between, you know, unpicking, for example, some of the headlines that we hear or read about mental ill health or mental problems, you know, the the sensationalist headlines sometimes that drive public opinion in this area. But also you're looking at how research is collated, how surveys are done, how do we end up with the data that we end up with? Exactly, because actually the this complexity exists in researchers' minds and researchers' work as well. You know, there's a lot of disagreement and discussion among academics about what counts as depression and you know should we ever use the term mental illness if it's a legitimate response to distress etc so all this confusion is going on behind academic doors and it always has been it's just that now we've kind of let loose the confusion into the into the public as well so absolutely I was trying to at least lay out the complexity and in a hope that that would clarify things. And you talk about the need for sort of, we're talking about literacy in this area that we all need Mm. to be, you know, much more involved And your book provides a sort of a springboard for better literacy in this area. But also, you know, I'm very interested in parenting. It's also Mm. about, it made me think your book, think about how I use language in family life. So Often you might hear a teenager say, oh, I'm so depressed, but they're not really clinically depressed. Mm. And as a family, you know, we as parents, we have a role to play in just in catching ourselves in catching other people say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's a big word. Are you sure you're using it appropriately? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's it's understandable why people use these terms, because they're the terms that we've given young people. And they have power and meaning you know there's we all want labels to un- language to understand our experiences so it's not really about accusing anyone or blaming people for for the words that they use but you're a- absolutely what you what you say is to try and pause and think a little bit about yeah what's the most helpful language for describing our experiences now obviously covid and you mentioned this in the book 
it sort of has created a sort of a narrative around mental health. And you can hear it every day through the headlines and the news reports. We're hearing, you know, just yesterday was about older women have been, you know, suffering depression during the COVID. You know, there are some big headlines about how COVID has impacted on mental health. But mm. in the book, you talk about what the hard data says, don't you? Well, I mean, the hard data, it's, <laughs> I don't think we have much hard data yet on COVID for lots of reasons, which I can talk about. But yeah, it's very interesting that we were having this conversation before 2020 about there being a mental health crisis and why people are so unhappy. And then COVID hit and suddenly, you know, we kind of pinball from topic to topic in the public conversation. And now we've landed on COVID as the problem. But actually, we were wondering what was going on with mental health before that. So I think we shouldn't think about COVID to the exclusion of other things. But yes, I think COVID, there's some, yes, emerging evidence that people's, you know, rates of anxiety and depression have increased. But it's it's quite difficult to unpack. Well, firstly, you know, the pandemic is ongoing, right? So what we know so far, we don't know whether we're talking about kind of transient periods of distress or whether, you know, which will fall once life regain some sense of normality, or whether we're talking about setting up long-term mental health problems. So, so that's a critical question that we don't really know yet. The other important thing about COVID is that it certainly seems from what we know so far that it hasn't affected everyone equally. So people in families of lowest socioeconomic status, for example, have been objectively more severely hit by the pandemic and also psychologically. But also I'm quite keen to promote the idea that some people's mental health has improved in the last year, young people included, and we need to understand why that is. So we absolutely shouldn't send the message that everyone's in crisis because of COVID, because that's not the case and that, that message doesn't help anyone. Absolutely. And the other thing that your book carefully unpicks is this issue of why girls may be disproportionately affected by mental ill health. And again, this is pre-COVID as well, but you sort of unpick it very gently. Mm. Social media is not entirely to blame. It's a very complex picture for young women, isn't it? And young men as well. I think a lot of what's interesting and important about mental health is true kind of across gender. But yes, yeah, something interesting does happen when children hit puberty. So particularly, for example, in terms of depression, Pre-puberty, there's a kind of equal prevalence of depression in boys and girls. But post-puberty, cases start to ramp up in girls so that the prevalence is kind of double what it is in, in boys. And there's lots of interesting reasons about why that might be. And one of my favourite bits of the book is where you talk about, you know, the sort of the identity construction that goes on in adolescence, that mm. you know, at that time they're trying to find out who they are. But then you might have this sort of the entry of social media into that dialogue and potentially more vulnerable young people may respond differently to the content within social media. There's definitely something there, isn't there? Well, that's what's so interesting about social media I think that if we want to understand the impact of social media on mental health we need to think more about the individual so what is happening in their life already that social media might just be reflecting or might be exacerbating rather than thinking necessarily that social media is causing something totally new and I try and lay that out in much more detail in the book but for example with cyberbullying the vast majority, like 99% of 
of young people who are being cyberbullied are also being bullied face to face at school. So that doesn't mean cyberbullying doesn't matter because there are interesting ways why it might be meaningfully worse to be cyberbullied as well. But it does mean that remove the phones, these young people are still being bullied. And we've known even pre-phone era that being bullied face-to-face is incredibly harmful. So I think we shouldn't assume that phones and social media have created something entirely new. It might be that they are just reflecting or exacerbating something that's already happening in the real world for a young person. I know you mentioned self-harm rates among young women quite a lot through the book. How did your sort of thinking evolve on that particular topic as you were writing the book? Where are we with that particular issue? Well, I think self-harm is interesting because I think it's the most compelling evidence of a rise. So lots of other data that suggests that rates of mental health problems are increasing. When you actually dig into the data, there is an increase, but it's not as bad as as the headlines might lead us to believe. But self-harm is slightly different, especially among adolescent girls really very clearly seems to be happening more now than it was in the past, fairly recent past. To understand why that is, you need to know why people self-harm. Most frequently, people do it as an emotion regulation strategy. Okay, So people self-harm because it helps them manage their overwhelming emotions. Another common reason, which these might both be true at the same time, is that people do it to punish themselves for some imaginary wrongdoing or because they dislike themselves. So knowing that helps us try and unpick why are young girls doing that more now? Is it because they're having higher levels of stress? Is it because they're not being taught how to manage that stress, how to regulate their emotions in other more helpful ways? Is there some reason why they might like themselves less than in the past? And then the other really interesting thing about self-harm is the kind of contagion element, which is that as with pretty much all behaviours, we learn this behavior from other people and you know a key predictor of whether a young person will self-harm is whether they have a friend who does it so I think we also need to think carefully especially in the context of social media is is where are people learning about self-harm so that you know an already distressed adolescent might learn about self-harm and then use that as a method to manage their emotions that they might not otherwise have used or known about And of course, as you mentioned in the book, finding like-minded people very, very easily through social media can be a contributing factor in some cases. Exactly. I mean, this is what's interesting about social media that didn't exist in the past, is that you've got access to a much wider pool of potentially similar individuals to you. And adolescence is absolutely about trying to kind of find similar others and work out who you are and kind of share experiences with others and copy other people as you figure out who you are. So yes, we need to think very carefully about how that's playing out on social media in terms of self-harm. And I understand that, you know, one of the big predictors of self-harm is low self-esteem. And I'm really interested in that concept. What do you think about that concept of self-esteem? And what is it that parents can practically do to ensure that children don't have low self-esteem? Well, you're right that, as I said, that one one reason that people give for self-harming is because they don't like themselves. I'm not a remotely a parenting expert, and you will know much more on this than me in terms of what parents can do. In fact, to the point where I don't feel comfortable trying to say what I think they should do because I think because I, I just don't know enough about a parenting topic and I wouldn't want to kind of throw something out there which isn't clearly evidence-based but you're, you're absolutely right 
if people are doing it because they don't like themselves, then we need to think about how can we bolster and reduce that. And of course, one of my favourite bits, if I'm allowed to have a favourite bit of your book, of course, was yeah. <laughs> in chapter five, I've, I've underlined it, when, we t- when you're talking about environment and how that yeah. contributes to mental issues. Yeah. You've got a, a lovely paragraph here, which sort of summarises the evidence based around, you know, some subtle parenting habits and how they can be linked to later mental health problems in children. Mm. So you've said these include rejection defined in the academic literature as a tendency for parents to criticize and disapprove of the child, control the tendency for parents to excessively regulate their children's activities and provide overbearing advice and instructions about how the child should think or feel, overprotection, excessive physical contact, infantilizing, and preventing the child from trying age-appropriate risk-taking and independent behavior, and a lack of warmth and affection. Now, I thought that was a brilliant summary. Thank you. Yes, I mean, parenting is fascinating because, yes, all and any of those behaviours can increase later risk. Uh, It doesn't mean that, you know, if you do experience those behaviours as a child, that you're definitely going to develop a mental health problem, but they do increase risk. And then the, the other interesting thing, kind of from an evidence perspective, is trying to unpack to what extent it's the parenting behaviour that's increased your risk and to what extent is it the kind of parallel genetic vulnerability that might have been passed down to you. And you address that, you know, very poignantly, I think. I mean, I too, like you've mentioned in the book, we've all met parents who are really worried and concerned about mental health history in Mm. their own family and what that would mean for their own children. Mm. I mean, you know, nothing is a predetermined destiny at all. I mean, this is all about kind of relative risk. So I absolutely wouldn't want to send the message that if you've got a a personal history of depression, for example, that that means you'll have a child with depression. That's not the case at all. This is all about sort of relative risk and vulnerability. And also, I think your book, again, shines light on the complexity of every individual. Everyone has different circumstances, different, received different quality parenting. They have had exposure to multiple stressors or not. It's so complex. Exactly. And that's why I think if you do experience one or more of these disorders yourself, there's an enormous temptation to figure out why it is. And yeah, it's easy to look at the parenting that you received, or some specific event that happened to you or to consider whether it's something in your brain or whatever. But actually, there there is no simple explanation. It's hundreds of different things that have all added up. I love the way that the book is divided into very easy chapters, you know, around particular themes. So you could dip into the chapter on environment or genetics Mm. or whatever it is. But one of the things I learned about from the book, which I didn't know previously, when you talk about network theory, which you consider to be the best explanation of what mental illness really is. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What I like about that theory in particular is that it makes the case that mental illness arises through a kind of web of interacting symptoms and difficulties. So there's often a temptation, for example, to say that it's a brain disorder, it's a problem in your brain, or it's because you had some difficult event happen to you in your life. But actually what this particular theory that I describe says is that there are multiple different vulnerabilities happening on different levels within the brain or psychology or in your environment, and they all interact with and feed off each other. And once one of those things kind of was a spark, so for example, let's say you go through a period of stress, 
because you break up with someone or because someone passes away and then you can't sleep. The fact that you can't sleep then affects your emotion regulation in the day, which then means you have low mood. The fact that you have low mood then means you can't concentrate or you're less, you know, you enjoy things less or you're less motivated to go out. Then when you become withdrawn, you don't have the kind of reaffirming social experiences. So the one initial issue, which was the bereavement or the breakup, causes a kind of cascade of other symptoms and experiences which then interact with each other or feed off each other. And what's so interesting about that particular theory, which I like, is that you can remove the original initial stressor or problem and by then it doesn't matter so for example if you you know you're no longer so upset about the bereavement or you left a stressful job or the exam period is finished or whatever that sometimes doesn't matter because once you've set up that network of symptoms it becomes self-sustaining and that's what can be hard to unpick and get out of I, I really I felt so happy when you highlighted the relevance of sleep problems the sleep problems can in so many cases, exacerbate mental illness. And I think it's something, for example, that parents don't really pay as much attention to, the quality of sleep that their teenager might get. It's really important, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. Sleep, not having enough sleep or having poor sleep quality, basically exacerbates every process that makes you vulnerable to mental health problems. So I just mentioned emotion regulation. So when you're sleep deprived, it's much harder to manage your emotions. So yeah, that's deeply important. And I think actually one interesting sort of side effect of the pandemic, which is a good one, so we don't seem to be talking about it much in the media, but it's that teenagers have been able to sleep more. And actually, a lot of teenagers were really chronically sleep deprived before. So now, you know, provided they're not sleeping all day or sleeping really erratic hours, I think the fact that they're getting a few more hours sleep in the morning could actually be a really beneficial, unexpected beneficial consequence of lockdown. Yet so many parents during lockdown were were suddenly seeing their child as a little bit more moody or more anxious than usual. But I think because the denial of social connection had seemed to be have a, quite an impact on many young people as well. Of course, which is completely understandable, right? I mean, it, it had a big impact on adults as well. It's horrible not being able to see your friends and people that you love. And I, I think in adolescent years in particular, you know, you're your world revolves around your peers often. So yeah, that was a huge cost to many of them to not be able to see their friends face to face. I mean, they, they still had social media. And again, I think that's a good benefit of social media in the pandemic was that, you know, it allowed to maintain a slightly different version of social relationships, which was so beneficial. And again, another point everybody talks about in parenting is friend or foe, smartphones. Are they friend or foe? Are they you know, a good thing, a bad thing? Are they causing mental health issues in children? And I love your point. I even, I can remember what page it's on, 148, mm -hmm. about phones that maybe you, I'll, I'll let you make it, Lucy, but I love the point that you make. I find it utterly strange, you say, that so much of the discussion about young people's mental health is fixated on their phones when there's been so much stress and disruption in the outside world for young people today. And as you say, there are so many global issues, you know, external stressors. It's not just about that little device, is it? Exactly. And I think there's a temptation with each generation to look at what's new, even though actually phones aren't that new anymore now. You know, social media isn't particularly new, but there's still a big temptation to blame everything on phones. I'm much more interested in understanding at an individual level for any one adolescent what is 
that phone doing? You know, you can't say whether they're good or bad for mental health because it depends on the adolescent. It depends on what they're doing with their phone. Plenty of people get an awful lot of pleasure from social media and from their phones. For some people, they would certainly report that it's making them deeply unhappy. And so it, like all of this, it it is complicated. But I think it goes back to my earlier point that I I don't think you should look at phones in isolation. I think you should look at how they're interacting with that person's real world social and personal problems. And somebody asked me to ask you this. They'd also Mm -hmm. read it. It was a friend of mine who's a lecturer in Belfast. She said, which chapter did you enjoy writing the most and which did you struggle with the most? Oh, my gosh. I found the whole thing incredibly difficult (laughs) to write. Yeah, it was a lot of a lot of work to get it right. The chapter that I, I see is sort of capturing what the book is about and why I wanted to write it was, I think it's chapter nine about language, about the importance of how we talk about mental health and how the public conversation might have misfired a little bit. To me, that's what drove the whole book. The hardest, hmm, that's a good question. I guess maybe the biology chapter, because there's, you know, some of the other chapters, there's much room, more room for kind of personal opinion. But the biological chapter and the rising rates chapter, I absolutely wanted to kind of skewer the actual research and get it right. So that, that a lot of work went into that. And you do mention your own personal experience as well, which is, you know, of some of some of the conditions that you write about, don't you? Yes, I had experience of what was diagnosed as depression and generalised anxiety disorder in my early 20s. And I debated about whether to include that in the book because I, I never really talk about it, not to my colleagues, despite conducting research on this topic. But I wanted to include it because I felt like it helps me kind of justify and explain my argument if the reader knows that I'm coming at this from a place of deep personal understanding. You know, I'm incredibly sympathetic and empathic towards people who have experienced extreme levels of distress because I know how, how awful it feels. So I, I wanted to talk about my own experience for that reason, to kind of frame my argument in that way. When you do, it was one of the first times I've ever really, really felt what you went through I've you know I've never experienced those things so it really gave me a a very strong sense of what those conditions feel like that it's not just butterflies in tummy you really Mm. described something that was happening to you that was overwhelming that was extraordinary and I think that's why it's so important to continue to give voice to people who have had experience of these disorders for exactly what you describe, so that when you see it laid out on the page, you can think, oh, hang on a second, actually, maybe what I experienced was just kind of regular anxiety, not, you know, when you have a phobia or panic disorder or generalised anxiety disorder, you're absolutely held prisoner by how overwhelmingly scared you are. And it's incredibly difficult to climb your way out of something because those thoughts are so so compelling and yeah they affect everything they affect the ability to live yeah a meaningful life when you're when you're really in the thick of it and I think I just I felt also I felt a responsibility to communicate that detail because I think one way of moving forward with the public conversation is to provide more information about what yeah what extreme versions of these disorders really look like and also that you know we do reserve the language of mental illness as you say for those who truly need it Yes, and this is what's so tricky because I don't want to deny people language to describe their distress because there's a reason why we use 
labels. It's, you know, they're helpful and important and they can bring us meaning. But I, I feel deeply that we need to figure out how to talk about anxiety, for example, lower levels of anxiety that people take seriously without necessarily needing to reach for labels like social anxiety disorder, for example. I think this is the real problem because these labels make people sit up and listen more than just saying, I'm having a hard time. But equally, on the flip side of that, you become immune to it. I mean, it looks like or sounds like every celebrity in the world has had anxiety, depression and PTSD, according to the media. And then you think, really? Really? Have all of them had those conditions? And this is the big problem, you know, then people become sceptical and they end up not believing anyone. And this is such a big problem because all these campaigns and this drive to raise awareness, the whole point was so that we would kind of respect and understand the experience of people with these conditions. And I think we've accidentally ended up just becoming sceptical of some admissions. And that's, yeah, that's a big problem. I think that certainly from my experience working with parents is, Either there's a jump to hire a clinical psychologist because their child doesn't want, you know, feels a little bit scared about presenting something in school or going through with the school play. So that's one side of it. But on the other side, there's also sometimes a reticence to have a child, say, assessed for some of the more serious conditions because they don't want their child to be labelled. Yeah, and that's exactly why this is so complicated, right? Both of these things are happening at the same time. So I think some people are probably worrying unnecessarily about sort of temporary problems but there's still an awful lot of people young people and adults who are badly in need of help and aren't getting it and you you also pick up on the idea that to hire a clinical psychologist is something that some people can pay for while lots of other people are trapped in an NHS system that isn't isn't serving them so I, I think both things are happening at the same time and that's something that's tricky to accept but you know I think we are both sort of overdiagnosing some distress, but also still missing some other distress. It's like the sort of metaphor in my head, the visual metaphor is kind of we're trying to make sense of these knots and, and you're, but you sort of undo the knots and lay them on the table for greater discussion to be had. Yeah, that's a nice image, actually, because, yeah, there's still a lot of pieces of string and each one of them isn't necessarily straightforward. But at least if you lay them out on the table, we have a better chance of making sense of it all, I think. And I do really like, you know, towards the end of the book, you talk about concrete actions. And one of my favorite ones is that we need to be better at listening to people and understand the power of active listening, because that's a a great asset in any relationship or any network of relationships that we can actually give each other some time and space to talk about what we're going through or what we're feeling. Definitely. And it's deceptively simple, actually, just to, to really ask someone how they are. And to give them space to listen and to not jump in with your own experience or your own opinions. I mean, it it sounds so simple, but it's unusual. It's difficult for people to listen. And I love, you know, your your emphasis on on exercise, on sleep and, and talking about stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's okay not to be happy. There's a space in between all of these extreme emotions that most of us occupy and that's normal. Mm. And you you can't, and just because it's normal doesn't mean it's pleasant to go through, but you cannot go through life and avoid experiencing negative emotions. You know, even if you live extremely cautiously, bad things will happen to you that you, you cannot predict and plan for. 
so it's really doing a disservice to young people to send the message that that the goal is to eliminate stress and difficulty obviously there's you know some stress that we should try hard to get rid of but the goal cannot be to constantly be happy unfortunately and Lucy, presumably you have a lot of sympathy with people working in schools with young people, you know, teachers, pastoral staff, they're really on the front line and it's really hard. You know, I, I know from working across many schools that they're struggling with all of these issues that you mentioned in the book. And then often there's nowhere to refer young people to easily. Exactly. And I think the describing them as being on the front line is the perfect way of putting it. It's often teachers who are trying to make these incredibly difficult decisions about to what extent something is a problem and what needs to be done about it. When, you know, really their job is to be teachers, you know, that's an incredibly demanding job in and of itself. And yet now they also feel like they're mental health workers at the same time. I'm incredibly sympathetic to that problem. And I think part of the issue is because, yeah, there's nowhere easy to refer to, to hand them over to people who who do specialise in this topic. I'll tell you what, I've read many books this year, but your book at the end, for some reason it made me cry <laughs> because oh. your beautiful sort of testimony to the people that your own support network was quite poignant. And it made me reflect on the sort of the answer to so much of the complexity and that was all will always be in relation, in relationships and in the social support that we all badly need. Definitely. Do, do you mean the acknowledgements? Or I think the... it was the, the ending and the acknowledgements where you're sort of reflecting on all the people that keep you feeling good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, you write acknowledgements when you finished a book when you're feeling quite sort of <laughs> drained and emotional about the whole thing. So I think it can be a bit of a kind of outpouring. But you touch on a really important point, which I think sometimes gets a little bit lost, which is we focus a lot on individual resilience and what, how people are supposed to cope themselves. And then we also think about what can professionals do and, you know, should we go to the GP about this? But we kind of forget about the, the third source of support, which is other people. And it's it's deeply, you know, from since the beginning of time, we've, social support has been incredibly important. And, yeah, I'm certainly a big personal advocate of that from my own life. I mean, it's just huge. And then, you know, a pandemic strikes and you you can't access the people you love and it tells you just just how important they are for keeping you afloat. But that's also, you know, retrospectively a real positive. We didn't realise the pandemic has given us the opportunity to really strip back what matters. These pillars of well-being and good mental health that everybody's been talking about for years, suddenly they were laid bare. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I really felt that in the first lockdown, I, I really realised, you know, there's actually quite a lot of people who I was seeing regularly who I didn't particularly miss. But there are a core group of people that you realise when that's taken away from you, just how important they are to you. And I think hopefully a, a nice thing as we come out of it, hopefully, is that we have a fresh appreciation for that. Just, you know, just seeing a friend for a coffee now, it's like, God, this is so nice. You know, I would have killed for this in January. And I, I think, yeah, that's not a bad thing to have yet yeah, to have realised what we what we love and what's important. And I think the extroversion and introversion, which I'm really interested in, they've all been sort of, you know, the extroverts like me felt horrible at the beginning of the mm -hmm. pandemic. But now we've calmed down a little bit. We've recognized that solitude and isolation can be good things. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, my friends who are introverted, you know, they, they've helped me understand more about 
the value of of not going to every dinner party, taking up every invitation, you know, living life like that. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you make a good point that people who are particularly extroverted have been forced to be introverts in terms of spending lots of time on their own and entertaining themselves. And uh, introverts have been forced to reflect on actually, you know, in the right doses with the right people that they, you know, they do really need the company of others. I think someone described it as a social sieve, you know, that the pandemic has <laughs> helped us understand. Do you know what? I wasn't really close to that person because I haven't heard from them for a year or actually I cannot believe how important my book club people were to me through, you know, so it's kind of, there's a recalibration, isn't there, of friendships and social networks and people suddenly realize how critically important school communities are to family well-being, to children's well-being. I definitely, and I thought it was interesting when things were starting to open up again, but there was still, which I suppose, you know, exactly the position we're in now, you can see other people, but there's an element of risk involved. And who is it that you're willing to see when there's a potential health risk? And who <laughs> does the health risk actually mean, actually, I don't want to see them that much anyway. So I think that was a very interesting, yeah, sieve to clarify who's really important to you and who's less important. I think I've just remembered the bit that made me cry. I think it was your lovely little mention of your of your partner. And it made me reflect when I was doing my PhD and my husband was the one who helped me, stayed up all night to help me type it out and print it off. And and I think it was just that your recognition that the experience of love keeps us well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. My, you know, my partner was with me when I was at university when I was unwell. And um, we're still together now. And just a very practical aspect of like, you know, I wrote most, we got sort of stuck in a one bedroom flat last year in the pandemic. And so I was in one room and he was in another room while I was doing the writing and he just had to stay out the way and <laughs> not have much of a social life at all while I was writing it. So yeah, just acts of love like that practically are very important for writing a book, but also, yeah, just that support is just so important and lovely. Well, listen, well done to him and uh, congratulations to you. And I think this book is, you know, it's going to win awards. It's fantastically written. It's dense. It's It deals with so much complexity in a way that is accessible. So thank you so much for your fantastic work on it and bringing it to our attention. Well done. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for engaging in it on such a deep level. You know, it's a real pleasure to have having been sat alone with it for so long. It's, it's a real pleasure to have these conversations about it. So thank you. Thank you. All the very best, Lucy. Take care. Thank you, Kathy. Take care. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. <laughs>